The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. I value white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. Must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues. And thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. A few weeks back, a very curious set of events happened one wintry afternoon. It was back in January on a cold day, and I work in downtown Provo, which is about 45 minutes south of Salt Lake City. And on this afternoon, an elderly gentleman stumbled into the lobby of my workplace. A co-worker invited him back to our office, and this man uh, began to inform us that he was stranded in Provo. He looked to be about in his mid-70s, and while he, he sort of walked slow and he talked a little bit slow, after a few minutes, we got the feeling that, that his, his faculties were together, he said that he had arranged for a ride to pick him up in Provo that morning, um, but there was a miscommunication, and those that were supposed to pick him up had gone to his house in Salt Lake. So we could definitely understand his predicament, and we sympathized with him, and uh, he produced a business card with his name on it, and to keep uh, the true identities of those involved anonymous, we will call him John. John gave me this business card, and it had, sure enough, it had the address to uh, a place in Salt Lake. Um, so we told him we'd get an Uber. He said, "What's that?" And we said, um, "It's a taxi, and it'll be it'll be easy." The Uber showed up. We put John inside. We gave the driver the address, and shortly, John was off back to where he was supposed to be going. And we thought nothing more of it. We thought we had done the right thing. Well, little did I know, later that evening, around 5 p.m., I received a phone call from the Uber driver, who informed me that after a 45-minute drive up to Salt Lake, they had reached the address, and it turned out to not be John's house. It seemed that that was John's old address, and where John was supposed to be, he couldn't tell us. And at that point, I began to question whether or not John was all there. And I had the Uber driver ask him if he had any phone numbers or any other information that could help us get him where he's supposed to be. And uh, to the credit of the Uber driver, he uh, tried to get more information from John and unfortunately, there John couldn't remember anything else. Um, but he did have one phone number with him, which I hung up, and then I tried to call that number, and nobody answered. And I'm, I'm trying to think, what are we going to do with this guy? I can't just leave John stranded up there, but if he doesn't know where to go, what do we, what do, we do? Well, it was about at this time that I received a text from one of my coworkers. He sent me the link to a local news article. And he said, dude, you're going to want to take a look at this. And when I read the headline, my heart sunk. 
Now, let me ask you something. What if I stopped there? Right? Think, think about how you're feeling right now. What if I just ended it? And I didn't tell you what happened next. The reason I'm bringing this up is because the topic of this episode today is all about the power of narrative. In fact, everything that I want to discuss on this podcast is about stories and the power of narrative and what it does to move us. Because think for a moment, did I get you? Are you curious? Is it kind of eating you inside to know what that news story said and what happened to this guy, John? Which, in fact, this is a true story. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. So the question is, why? Why do you care? You're not me. You're not involved with this story. You don't know, like, the stakes. If, if, if something bad happened to me, it would not actually affect you directly. So the question remains, why? Now, fortunately... I'm going to tell you how it ended, because a story without an ending is one of the most aggravating things in the world. We want to know how things end. So I'm going to tell you, the KSL story that my friend sent me was a link to a silver alert. You know how they have like amber alerts when a child has been kidnapped or gone missing? Um, they also have this thing called a silver alert, and that is when a senior citizen or an elderly person has gone missing and they don't know where he's at. And sure enough, this new story has a picture of John, and it says that his family, who resides in Provo, is looking for him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what have we done? So... I contact Gabriel and I look it up and fortunately the address that he went to in Salt Lake was only a couple of blocks away from a nearby police station. And again, huge, huge thanks to the Uber driver because um, he was super willing. I was like, hey, there's a police station. Why don't you go and drop John off there? They should know they should be able to get in contact with his family and get him where he needs to be. And I, I was mortified. I felt so bad that we sent him off in the wrong direction. So fortunately, the next day, John's son came by my work and said, I understand that my father was here yesterday. Um, you guys helped him out, helped him get an Uber. I apologize profusely for sending him in the wrong direction. I told them that, that John seemed to have his faculties about him, but that ultimately uh, he was carrying an old address is what had happened. He had recently moved to Provo, which is, you know, 45 minutes away from the direction we sent him. But uh, John's son was very grateful that his father was in a warm car all that afternoon while he was missing that he wasn't just wandering around the streets of Provo. So everything worked out okay. And um, I am glad that, that in the end, John was fine and reunited with his family. Now, back to the reason that I'm telling you this story. Stories are powerful. They are potent. One of the things about a good story is it impacts us on a personal level. I call it the, the, the protagonist phenomena. We, we can't help but put ourselves in the shoes of whoever is leading the story, you know, the, the protagonist or the, the point of view at which we experience the story. We can't help but step into their shoes and experience it based on them. And it has this incredible power to move us. 
I want to share a little bit of an audio that illustrates this point. Well, let me begin by asking you a question. What's more powerful in shaping our views, narrative or argument? Here's an argument against abortion. This is an argument. By the end of the first trimester, fetuses have brain waves. They have five fingers on each hand. They have a stomach. They have functioning kidneys. They have an operational heart. They have fingerprints. And yet each year, 1.6 million abortions are performed, and 91% uh, of those, 1,456,000 abortions are performed in the first trimester. Now, here's an anti-abortion narrative. Jane was 16 years old. She got pregnant by her boyfriend. And she, she was pretty, she was smart, and she knew that having this baby was going to ruin her life. So she started asking her friends, she started asking her family members, and they all encouraged her to go ahead and do it. Prompted by these people, she drove to the abortion clinic. She thought it was no big deal. As she walked into the clinic, something odd happened. Another girl accosted her. She said, all babies want to be born. Jane ignored her. After all, what did this young woman know? Your baby has a heart, the girl told her. Jane ignored her again. This is still propaganda, she thought. Your baby has fingernails. Now, that was odd, right? This shook her. She walked into the abortion clinic and she sat down. She glanced around. And she couldn't help but notice that everybody was playing with their fingernails, right? Tapping them on the tables, chewing on them. And she thought, fingernails, I have a life growing inside me. And she walked out of the abortion clinic, and that was the end of the story. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you remember the statistic that I gave you about a minute and a half ago? Now, how many of you remember what prompted Jane to walk out of the abortion clinic? Everybody remembers the fingernails, right? And I promise you that a week from now, even those of you who actually remembered the statistic, and by the way, it was 1,456,000, those of you who remember that will have forgotten the statistic and you'll remember the fingernail story. Narrative matters. So that sound bite comes from a speech given by Ben Shapiro. Now, I know he's a political analyst, he's a pundit, a news commentator, and definitely uh, enrolled in much political debate. And the reason that I'm sharing this is actually has nothing to do with politics. The point stands that while I heard this speech three years ago, the part that I remember is not the facts that he shared about abortion, not the, the different details. It's the fingernails. It's the story. And I think there is a reason why facts are forgotten. Arguments are easily disregarded, but we latch on to stories because from stories, we derive deep meaning. In fact, a series of told events doesn't even reach the level of what we would deem a story until we understand the purpose of that story or the meaning behind it. That is what elevates a series of events to the level of story is it becomes meaningful. Marketing consultant Simon Sinek in his book, Start With Why, talks about the different facets of our brain and the way that we interpret information, right? We have in our brain the part that is called the neocortex or the new brain. It is the thing that separates us from the animal kingdom. It's the thing that enables us to be able to understand cause and effect and weigh things logically. But the interesting thing, all studies on the brain show that it is not the neocortex we use to make decisions. It's actually the limbic brain, the inner brain, the brain closer tied to instinct. We might use the term basing decisions off our gut, but the fact of the matter is that our voting, the way we interpret data, 
the way we experience life, we, the, the meaning that we create behind all of it comes from the limbic brain. It's the part that generates instinct and emotion. And all of us are deeply emotional human beings. The other thing that is for certain is all of us are striving to find meaning in the events that we experience. So it makes sense that when we experience a story, we would internalize it because we're trying to find the meaning in it. Just as we find the meaning in the events that happen in our lives. We don't remember what was said, but we will remember how we felt. This is the inaugural episode of my podcast. And this podcast is all about stories and narrative. It's about books, movies, poetry, theater. We'll discuss history. We'll take quotes from all over the place, but all with the focus on breaking down and understanding more about narratives and the most potent form of narrative, the oldest form of narrative, which is ultimately storytelling. But let me take a step back and let me take a stab at this from the approach that uh, Russell Brunson would take. And he is one of the best marketers today. And any time that he is pitching a product or offering something um, to people, he'll often break it down by saying, who is this for and who is this not for? And this really helps people make a decision and not feel pressured into making decisions. So this is my non-pressure pitch for you to either like and enjoy this podcast and come back for more or to say this isn't for you. So let's go. Who's this for and who is it not for? Let's start with who is it not for? This is not for people who think books are always better than movies. This podcast is also not for people who think that movies are inherently better than books. The intention of this podcast is not at all to take any form of storytelling or art and to rip it down. There is such a thing as constructive criticism, no doubt. But the goal of constructive criticism is never to tear down. I fully recognize as a writer that anybody who goes out there to create anything, whether it's art, whether it's writing, whether it's stories, whether it's videos, whether it's TikTok content or audio content or music, they are putting their soul, their heart on their sleeve. And there are so many people out there taking arrows. And if I am going to contribute to this, this uva, this, this body of work that we call the internet, the, the media explosion that we've seen over the past 10 years, it is going to be in the form of praise and taking the good and leaving the bad, but focusing on the things that really grow us as individuals and help us learn and do better. That is my shout out to all artists that I know how difficult it can be to go out there and, you know, take the tomatoes and the vegetables that, that people throw at you on the internet. This is not a place for tearing down. This is a place for building up. So who's this not for? This is also not for trolls. This podcast is not for people who think that their opinion is fact. This is not for someone who thinks that subjective art forms such as movies and books, can be debated on an objective level that it means a narrative is either a good narrative or a bad narrative. I actually don't believe in any bad stories. 
On that note, I am actually a Stephanie Meyer Twilight apologist. And let me tell you why. A lot of people will say, no, those books are just bad. A lot of people hate those books that have never even seen them. A lot of people watch the movies and then immediately hate the books. And I think this is incredibly unfair. I think you've always got to take into consideration the intended audience for the narrative. I think those, those books were written for a certain demograph and certain age group. And most of the people throwing stones at that narrative are not in that demograph. It's unfair. It's like being pissed at Dr. Seuss for not being more profound, more deep, not dealing with more uh, complex issues. They're, they're kids' books. And I think the Stephanie, this, uh, what Stephanie Meyer created is also geared towards a certain demograph. And we can, I think we should only critique it under that light. So who is this not for? This is not for trolls. Now let me say, who is this for? This is for book lovers. This is for people who are interested in storytelling. This is for writers, creators, filmmakers, musicians. I hope to be able to discuss things that any creator out there can relate to. Because I believe that as a writer myself, as a filmmaker, that a lot of the things that I've experienced and learned, I, I hope to find common ground out there with other individuals who have, who have experienced similar things. And I hope to get people excited to share their stories and to give back. And finally, who else is this for? This is for anyone who gets excited by the idea of having someone else go out and find interesting snippets, segments, sound bites, and passages from books that maybe you've never read. And hopefully, I, I hope to be able to share snippets that will inspire you to go out and, and maybe digest that content. Or maybe it's from books that you, you'll never get around to reading, but at least you got a small snippet. And in that vein, I wanted to share two segments from two separate books that both are talking about the power of storytelling. The first comes from Stephen King, his book on writing, A Memoir of the Craft. It is a great read. I believe that every single writer out there should buy this book and take some time to read it. Whether or not you like Stephen King's writing, his book on writing is so powerful. And he has so many amazing nuggets that will just motivate you to do more writing and motivate you to get your craft out there to the world. It's very powerful stuff. Stephen King in this book makes a, an argument that while humans haven't really found a way to telepathically communicate, he says writing is the closest thing that we have to that, and this is what he says. This book is scheduled to be published in the late summer or early fall of the year 2000. If that's how things work out, then you are somewhere downstream on the timeline from me, but you're quite likely in your own far-seeing place the one where you go to receive telepathic messages. He's referring at this to where you go to read books. He calls it your uh, far-seeing place. Because, you know, you, you hunker down, you, you put a book in front of, your, front of your eyes, and suddenly in your mind you are experiencing far-seeing places. So he says, you're likely in your own far-seeing place, the one where you go to receive telepathic messages. Not that you have to be there. Books are a uniquely portable magic. I usually listen to one in the car, always unabridged. I think abridged audiobooks are the pits. And carry another wherever I go. You just never know when you'll want an escape hatch. Mile-long lines at tollbooth plazas, the 15 minutes you have to spend in the hall of some boring college building waiting for your advisors. He goes on. 
So let's assume that you're in your favorite receiving place, just as I am in the place where I do my best transmitting. We'll have to perform our mentalist routine, not just over distance, but over time as well. Yet that presents no real problem. If we can still read Dickens, Shakespeare, and with the help of a footnote or two, Herodotus, I think we can manage the gap between 1997 and 2000. And here we go. Actual telepathy in action. You'll notice I have nothing up my sleeves and that my lips never move. Neither, most likely, do yours. So in other words, he's making a case for telepathic communication. Why? Because it's put down on paper and it's sent into the future to be experienced by some reader at some point. I really like this idea, this metaphor, that writing is a way to telepathically communicate. And I would like to elevate it to another level. All we have is shared experience. If you think about how we interpret the world, we have our multiple senses, our sight, hearing, taste. And have you ever heard the the interesting story, you know, how do you explain to someone what salt tastes like without using the word salty? And the fact of the matter is, you can't describe it to someone. If there was an individual who was, for some reason or another, born without the ability to taste things, you would not be able to describe to them what that experience is like. They, they, they would not be able to understand it. It's like trying to explain what light is to someone who was born blind. There, there was a study done, and they actually found that people who are born blind dream 100% orally. That means that in their dreams, all they're doing is hearing. They don't, it's not like they have images in their mind while dreaming. It is just sounds even when they dream. It is like there is that entire experience has just been removed. So now let's put it on the flip side. Imagine that you have a sixth sense. Imagine that you experience something new that no one else can experience. How would you describe it to them? The closest thing I can think of to that is uh, a few a number of years back, I was struggling with intense anxiety and panic attacks. And when when I'm having a panic attack, I, it is some of the strangest sensations. I describe it as pain, but it's not really like physical pain. It's like brain pain. But unless you've experienced it yourself, you, you, you don't really know what I'm talking about. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because all we have is shared experience. And narratives are the thing that, that, that connect our shared experiences, right? Someone relates the events that they went through. And we have this insane ability to put ourselves in their shoes. And if you are in a character's shoes long enough... And if you can stay interested long enough, and there are some really subtle tweaks and some really subtle strategies that a storyteller can do to help you be connected to that protagonist even more, then we will start to see the world through their eyes. And that is powerful. And that is why we can learn from stories and we experience catharsis through stories. Stories are the ult- ultimately the best way that we can learn from someone else's mistakes. And they stay with us because in that journey of witnessing the events, we take home meaning and it makes us feel a certain way. We cry when Romeo and Juliet kill themselves. 
And we're over the moon when Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy finally get together because we feel like we've been on the same journey with them. Stories are vessels for meaning. The last passage I'm going to share is from a book called The Winter Room. It is a very small book. I don't even think it reaches 100 pages. It's written by Gary Paulson, who's the same author as The Hatchet, which is a book that I loved uh, in middle school. And The Winter Room is a very unique story. It's about these boys who live on a farm and work on a farm, but in the winter, when they've got all their work done, they go in at night and they sit around the fire and their uncle tells stories. And the stories that he tells are vibrant and interesting and it all culminates to a very, very beautiful moment at the end. So this is from the perspective of the younger brother. He says, It is strange. It is strange the way it happened. Strange and kind of inside out. It all came down to how Wayne felt about the stories. I always thought of them as just stories and didn't think they were real. I mean... I know there probably aren't a man and a woman living in a cottage under the sea. Probably. Once, Mother said the stories were not for believing so much as to be believed in. But it was different for Wayne. I didn't know it, but it was different. Somehow, the stories had mixed in his mind so they had all become a real part of his thinking. So that he believed them. And even when he knew they couldn't be, knew there couldn't be a man and a woman living in a cottage under the sea, even then, he wanted them to be real wanted her hair to take the ships down, and by wanting them to be real, somehow they became real in his mind. And that's how the trouble started. I think we all share something in common with Wayne. I think that even though we know a story isn't real, even though we know it's fiction, just like his mother said, the stories were not for believing so much as to be believed in. We know they're not real, we know it's not happening, but there seems to be a kernel of truth a piece of someone's human experience that is conveyed through a story and we take it home with us. And if we like the story, we certainly want it to be real. The cosplay industry is just evidence of this, of the power of a good narrative. And for us all to say, dang, I wish I lived there. I have to admit, I want to be a hobbit. I would love to live in Hobbiton and experience the life that Tolkien put down on paper. It's one of the most vibrant things in the world for me. Which brings me to my final point. Why stories? Why am I spending so much time belaboring this point that narratives are powerful and uh, capable of conveying deep, deep meaning to an audience? Because if you want to have an impact on the world, then telling your story will be one of the most powerful things that you will ever do. I'm reminded of Wilson Rawls. He's the author of Where the Red Fern Grows and uh, Summer of the Monkeys, which is one of my favorite books while growing up. Wilson, uh, he had minimal education, um, but upon reading Jack London's book, The Call of the Wild, it inspired him at a young, at a young age to try and become a writer. Um, by the time he was in his early 20s, he had five manuscripts that he kept in a trunk. But right before he got married, Wilson was embarrassed of his stories. He's, he said their punctuation and the grammatical errors um, were just awful. And so he took these manuscripts and he burned them. 
Now, fortunately, after getting married, his wife encouraged him to pursue his dream and rewrite the novels that he had burned, and he did in fact rewrite Where the Red Fern Grows. And because of her support and encouragement, one of the most vibrant books of my youth exists today. I am astonished to learn that under different circumstances, the book, Summer of the Monkeys, may never have been put down on paper. That book may have never existed if someone wasn't there to support and encourage Wilson Rawls. And this, this story about the author hits home to me because I believe there are many people out there with potent, valuable stories that can have a big impact. But they're finding it hard. They're discovering obstacles in, in getting their story down on paper. So allow me to be the source of encouragement to any who are listening out there. All of you who feel that you have a story to tell, get it out there and tell it. Write it down, record it, get in front of a camera and tell it whatever medium you choose. Share it. Because narratives have an impact. Your story can make all the difference for someone out there. Don't sell yourself short because you just never know whose life you're going to impact with your story.